Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is dedicated to the insightful discussion of music arranging and composition. What we do takes a lot of hard work and resources. We are asking for support from listeners like you to continue to make this podcast available for everybody. Please consider contributing a monthly donation to our Patreon platform. We sincerely appreciate any contributions you are able to give. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, or leave a review on iTunes. Be sure to send us your questions and feedback to thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com and find out more at www.thearrangerspodcast.com. Let's dive in. Uh, hello, everyone, uh, and welcome back to the Arrangers Podcast. We know it's been a little while, um, but uh, we're glad to be back, aren't we, Aaron? Oh, yeah, we're definitely glad to be back, especially because we're joined by a world-class arranger, uh, composer, musician, and educator, uh, Earl McDonald, which he was kind enough to reach out to us individually and just uh, you know encourage us with our podcast and um, we were definitely thrilled to hear from him and jumped on the uh, opportunity to chat with him. So, uh, Earl, thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled you're here. Thanks for reaching out again. And, uh, yeah, it, it definitely made us feel like we were doing something right. Right. <laughs> guys absolutely are. You know, it's so cool to hear perspectives, uh, from other arrangers and, and I have a lot of respect for what you guys are doing. You know, I've, I've, I've checked you guys out on the internet, and uh, you're doing great work. Wow, that's very kind, very kind. We uh, we try to make uh, you know uh, uh, a lot of arrangers and composers don't get good interviews uh, by people in the media <laughs> because they just they, there's no empathy for what's really going on. So uh, we just like there's no uh, there's, there's some journalism happening. You know, I don't know if y'all have y'all checked out Bill Dobbin's book on. Uh, 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 Bill Holman yet. Uh, that's like apparently one of the best things out there right now. And of course, Dave Ravello is doing the same thing on uh, Bob Brookmeyer. Um, it's excellent. Yeah, yeah, pretty incredible stuff. Um, but uh, but so we're we're just trying to fill a little niche. Um, so uh, thank you again so much for being on the show. Yeah. yeah. We were going to um, start like we do with every interview by just kind of getting your background from, I mean, obviously you've, uh, you know, worked with Maynard Ferguson's Big Band Nouveau and done a lot of things and written your own albums. And uh, but even before that, how did you yeah. get started in writing music, arranging, playing and getting into jazz? Uh, well, my, I basically, I started by, my parents signed me up for electronic organ lessons as a child. Really? Nice. So, uh, and I took group organ lessons on the Yamaha Electone. <laughs> electone. I was about to ask if it was an Electone because that's like, I don't know. It, there's, it's huge in Japan right now. The Electone, like was it's it, it's like it's got a whole culture and everything but there were there were people in canada doing electode lessons winnipeg canada. right it was actually right. huge and uh it was like this little subculture of, of electronic organ and there were competitions and all that kind of stuff and um so i was really into it my dad actually built an electronic organ 
one of those heat kit projects. And so that was our first instrument. And then we got a few others over, over the years. Um, so my, my first professional gig <laughs> was actually playing organ for hockey games. Really? In Winnipeg? In Winnipeg, right? So, um, you know, as a kid, I grew up playing ice hockey. And uh, so I aspired to, you know, become the organist for the Winnipeg Jets, you know? Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So I actually, in, by the time I was in high school, I accomplished that goal, right? So that was my first gig, playing wow. uh, for 15,000 people every night. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, and, you know, I was making a lot more money than all my friends who were flipping burgers. <laughs> I'm sure you were. I'm sure. You, what what kind of musical uh, gestures was it like? The da, 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 that kind of stuff? Or? All of that, you know. And, all of that. And uh, hand claps, you know, sometimes you'd play some country western tunes that people would, uh, you know, just be clapping along with. Play tunes during the, uh, during the intermissions. Nice, nice. All that kind of stuff. Now, do you have a band? Is that what you're saying? Or was it just you and then you had the, you know, the bass and the feet and the sequenced drums? Or was that what it was? Or? That's exactly it. So I, it was uh, yeah. a little built-in drum machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty good, actually, the one on the feet. Um, you know, and thinking back, you know, in some ways that may have prepared me to be an arranger, you know, because, uh, you do have all these sounds at your disposal, right? Combining things, you say, Hey, what would the clarinet sound like mixed with, uh, with a trumpet, you know? And so you really are doing that kind of stuff right off the bat. Um, you know, and I learned to read chord symbols at that early stage. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess as I got into high school, um, my high school had a had a jazz band, and it was actually a very good jazz band. They um, they consistently won the Canadian Nationals. So, wow! So I of course wanted to be a part of that band, and um, tried out and eventually got in. <laughs> there were so many great musicians that went through that school, uh -huh. um, and I don't know what why that is. It maybe hmm. I've thought about it sometimes. Maybe it's because it's kind of a, an upper middle class uh, environment where uh, parents put their kids in music lessons, you know. Yeah. But sure, um, sure. Even thinking about that high school program, uh, you know, the Mike Downs went there. He heads the program now at Humber College in Toronto. Wow. He's a saxophone uh, player who uh, he teaches at a university in Kansas. Uh -huh. There's so many, you know, George Lax, who is uh, the keyboard player in Lenny Kravitz's band. Oh, nice. uh, he was huh. a few years older than me. Um, the lead singer for the Crash Test Dummies. I don't know if you guys know that rock band. I, uh, I don't heard of them. They had some top 40 hits. Okay. Um, Superman song is one of theirs. Okay. Uh, okay. Deep, low voice. Um, anyway, so... In high school, that's where I kind of was introduced to big band music and, um, you know, found out that I could improvise, sort of. <laughs> uh, well, Electone, that's it, it just it's a very demanding instrument. You know, you are your mind is that you're flipping switches, changing uh, orchestration, your feet, you're doing pedal feet stuff. You're, it's two. Or, is it three manuals or two? I think it's just two, right? Or. It depends. Some it of them depends. Annual, yeah. Sure, um, but yeah, that that's like, yeah, you, you're all you're constantly arranging, and 
and I'm sure improvising too, particularly with some of these songs. So it's a, uh, it might not be bebop, but it, it sure is improvisation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was during those high school years that I decided I would start to, I saw a need to, to learn how to play the piano as opposed to just the electronic organ. Sure. You know, pianos everywhere and there weren't always organs and, you know, mm -hmm. so I thought that would be a useful skill to have. So I signed up for classical piano lessons at that point. Um, got a few uh, of that under my belt and was playing in the uh, high school jazz band. And also I started playing in the university jazz band uh, at the uh, University of Manitoba while I was a high school student. Okay. Oh, wow. So I got Fantastic. lots of experience playing, you know, all the stock Sammy Nastico and Basie kind of charts at that point. All those very demanding piano charts. <laughs> did, did you feel a connection to those those charts as a writer at that point? Definitely not. Okay. And uh, it's, it's even kind of funny, you know, um, I'm almost hesitant to admit it, right? But I've, I don't know if I've ever really had a, a really strong connection to that kind of big band music, you know, sure. the, 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 base, the whole Basie tradition and Nestico. And um, I did an awful lot of it, you know, growing up and, you know, through my undergrad years. And uh, it's kind of funny, you know, when I went off to grad school, I, we're jumping ahead quite a bit, right? But I went off to grad school. And I remember uh, talking with Mike Mossman, who was, you know, running yeah. at that point. I said, you know what, Mike, I really don't want to be in the big band. I, I've I've done it. I've been there. I've played all these charts a million times. I just, you know, I, I'd rather just focus on small group playing. And he said, well, you don't, you have no idea what music we're going to do. And I said, you're right. I don't. And so then he said, and also I have an assignment for you. I want you to head down to the village. He says, have you heard Maria Schneider's band? I said, no, I had never even heard of her. Ooh. And this was, but this was like at the early part, early stages of her band. Uh -huh. Right. 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 So, uh, I said, go down there, go check it out. And I did. And that was a life changing moment for me. So that's, you know, that's where I had, uh, where there was a real connection to the big band music. The, um, earlier, it was, a, it was a good chance to play. I enjoyed doing it. I learned how to comp, I learned how to do all that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't say that that was, uh, I discovered my life calling at that point. Gotcha. Wow. Were you writing for small group music before that, though? Yeah. So uh, probably I, I, you know, even in high school, I was writing simple little uh, combo arrangements. Nice. Um, and then in my undergrad years, uh, you know, the first arranging assignments we had, uh, I remember those. I wrote a silly thing on uh, St. Thomas. Nice. And then we had maybe, a, I think maybe the second arranging assignment that I ever remember doing. I might have been for a weird combination of maybe eight horns or something where I did Mood Indigo. Um, and then my first big band arrangement was around that time. And as an undergrad student, I wrote something on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> ah, okay, fun. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Fantastic. But, but not, uh, not a real connection to, the, to big band music. Uh, or like, I guess, the, 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 at what point did you consider yourself a writer? Because obviously you're primarily interpreting this as a you're a pianist who writes some and plays a lot when did when did the transformation into a writer uh happen for you uh it was gradual for sure mm. you know it may even have been uh once i became a university professor 
Hmm. Range. You know, I, I had always, both my degrees are in performance, jazz piano performance. Um, I remember there was a period, so I've, I've been at this university teaching now for 20 years, right? It's, it's crazy that that's... That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. But, you know, I, I remember entering a, a big band chart that I wrote for, originally for Maynard's band in that Sammy Nestico competition sponsored by the Airmen of Note. Uh-huh. Right. That's where I met Alan, too, Alan Baylock. Okay, was, yeah. Oh, of course. Fun memories of hanging out with him, you know, back then. Yeah. Uh, so winning that competition, then that led to another commission. And then mm-hmm. I kept getting these commissions, you know. It was like I'd enter a contest, and then that would lead to something else. And then I just found that I was writing all the time. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, you know, I, I guess I had a certain degree of success in it, and I enjoyed it. And, sure. Uh, you know, there's a sort of a buzz that you get, you know, when you when you go and you and you hear a piece that's realized for the first time. Yeah, uh, we know all about that. Yeah, and when it works, that's that's the greatest feeling ever, right? So uh, I kind of got really hooked at that point. Wow, wow, and so that must have been. Probably your late twenties or early thirties that that happened or so. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. And when you were, um, I guess, out of school, maybe for the first time, or maybe it was during that time. Uh, how would you describe the early, you know, years of your career of like entering the workforce and touring and stuff like that? How did that all come about? Like getting the gig with Maynard, that kind of thing. Or? Yeah. Yeah. And, and other stuff in general? Uh, let's see. So graduated from Rutgers, and um, I got a tip that they were uh, that uh, St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, that their uh, jazz piano teacher was going to be going on sabbatical. Mm. So uh. contacted him and asked if he needed a replacement. And so I went out there for a year. I, I got really lucky to land that. It's just a one-year position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a gig. Yeah, that got teaching on my resume. Yeah. And, uh, and that was really fun because uh, they had a, a touring um, faculty group. We ran around to the maritime provinces and uh, you know, did a lot of playing. So that was cool. Then after that, uh, I think I, let me think. I had one year back in Winnipeg uh, where, again, I was practicing really diligently and uh, writing a little bit, but not so much. Um, Then I, or let me think, maybe I didn't even have a year in between. I went off to Bowling Green, Ohio. I got another one-year position. And it was funny. At the end of that position, so I was up for the gig. And that's kind of, that was a weird scenario, right? Because... uh, (laughs) It was out. Their jazz piano teacher had left. His name was Rus- Russell Schmidt. I don't know if you know his, his name. Uh, he taught out. So he was at Bowling Green. Then he got the gig at Eastman. And hmm. but his wife was back at Bowling Green. So during that year, he decided he wanted his old gig back. You know, and so he applied for the gig, and it was sort of you know I kind of knew it was going in that direction. But oh, yeah. here I was. I was teaching there, and I was applying for to continue. Anyway, he got his old gig back. And I was sure. thinking, what am I going to end up doing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some on the wall saying Maynard Ferguson's band was was performing uh, at a local high school. And so it's like this light bulb went off. And I thought, man, 
I'm going to go down there with my CD in hand and introduce myself and see if I can land a gig. And it worked. Oh, my huh. gosh. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's no awesome. No kidding. You went for it and you landed it. That's so awesome. That's amazing. And so uh, when you when you started with Maynard, did you become musical director right away or was it after a little time in the band and then you became MD or? Yeah, it was after a little while. Um, I did get hired. One of the reasons they hired me because I went on the CD, it featured my writing. I, I had already recorded my first quintet album. Uh-huh. Uh... So Tom Garling had listened to it and, uh, you know, told Maynard that I could write as well. So Maynard was, was excited about that. Uh. Um, when I came on the band, the only two people that uh, they just recorded an album. And whenever they record an album, there's a mass exodus, huh. right, where everyone uh -huh. leaves a new band. So the only two guys that had stayed were the bass player and drummer. Mm. So mm. the bass player started as musical director. After a while, he left and then. Then I got a phone call from Maynard during a break and asking me if I wanted to uh, take over the leadership role, which is kind of fun. So oh, cool. Wow. That's beautiful. So what did that entail as as far as, uh, you know, what changed from being the pianist to being the pianist and musical director? Uh, I would rehearse the band, you know, during, uh, you know, and yeah, we'd have little little rehearsals, you know, before before gigs, just kind of touching on passages that might have been rough. Uh huh. I had the role of selecting people that would be joining the band, you know, so people sent audition wow. tapes to go through all of those tapes. I put together set lists, usually, mm. but it, that was tricky, right? And of course, and I, yeah. I was, and I was writing charts for the band as well. What was tricky about it was, at that point, Maynard had kind of lost some self-confidence uh, in a way. Huh. Um, and I hope I'm being accurate in saying that, um, but... You know, we'd bring in, I'd bring in new charts and we'd rehearse them and I thought everything sounded great. And then you'd get on the gig and then he'd kind of look at you and you could tell he was wavering. And he says, ah, let's just play just friends, you know? <laughs> so it's like we'd, we'd rehearse new things and we'd be all ready to go. And then he would call one of the old tunes, you know, at, at the very last second. So it was weird. And I, you know, I learned a lot during that period too, because I'd say I was kind of immature in the way that I approached things, you know. I I thought, here's my chance to transform Maynard's band and make it more tasteful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was trying to think historically. I was thinking like, okay, think about Wayne Shorter. You know, Wayne Shorter, how he transformed all the bands that he entered, yeah. right? Whether it was right. jazz messengers or whatever. And I thought here's my chance. I'm, I'm going to be that guy, right? That brings in some, you know, beautiful moving ballads to have, uh, that are going to be expressive, you know, as yeah. so ah. not high, fast and loud, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, Maynard's gig is that specific, right? Like yeah. that's, that's yeah. for, and, and I really learned that there had to be a Maynard moment, right. In a, it, within a chart where it was, where it got really dramatic. Um, so yeah, that I brought in initially failed and weren't weren't picked or weren't programmed for that reason. Mm -hmm. it's a great learning experience, right? Yeah. So I think I really grew and you know, but some some people, my kids included, right? I, I find that uh, they have we have to learn the hard way by by experiencing things and doing things the wrong way, right? Sure, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a his he's 
it's like an action movie. It's got to have some fire and uh, and explosions at, at some at, in some form or fashion. You got to have that moment uh, because where it builds, yeah, builds, yeah. builds, and then he squeals the high notes and then throws his arms up yeah. in the air and goes, yeah! you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's that's actually one of the. Uh, this is a hopefully a good follow up question. Like, uh, so that's very much a learning experience. Is that was that difficult? Was that demanding? Was it amazing? Is it was it? It's like what uh, what were the emotions that you were having as you were figuring this out and realizing what you needed to do as a writer for this particular situation? Uh, I may have been frustrated at the time. I remember. Yeah. You know, writing a lot of music and and hoping that this would be the one that would that would make it into the into the regular rotation or mm-hmm. we get on a CD. So that was probably the emotion at the time. But yeah, that was a real time of of learning and um, and growing. I was I was definitely writing a lot then. So maybe I maybe I'm not being completely accurate in terms of saying that uh, I got into writing so much when I was uh, once I landed a university gig. You know. <laughs> yeah. Definitely writing charts, and I was taking uh, I was taking lessons too. When whenever the band was on breaks, you know, we might be off for two weeks, so mm-hmm. I, I would schedule trips to New York, and I took lessons during that time with Maria Schneider, mm. with Vinny, wow. Mike Mossman, and I would continue. I studied with him during grad school, but I'd continue to get together with him and mm-hmm. and talk. And uh, did did Mike Abene have any? Good advice, because he was, of course, a writer for Maynard for a while. Um, did he have some good choice words for you for that band, or or did he want you to do other stuff? Or? Uh, you know what? In in some ways, um, some ways he was part of the problem, right? Because he... <laughs> <laughs> Mike was supportive, right? He was very critical of Maynard's book at that time. Hmm. <laughs> so, so he, uh, you know, he had been out to a few of our gigs, and that that's where I met him. I actually met him at the Blue Note. Maynard introduced me to him, and uh, you know, and then uh, I asked Mike if it would be possible for me to head out and get some lessons over with, with him. You know, um, but yeah, Mike Mike hated the charts that were that we were playing, hmm. and Aww. he was in full support of trying to make them more artistic and beefier with better voicings and and hmm. all that stuff. Right? Uh, oh no. Yeah, so no, he wasn't he wasn't helpful as far as uh, as getting my music programmed, but he certainly was helpful in terms of music. Yeah. Yes, of course. And you know, he's, he's a genius. One of my heroes. He's that absolutely a genius. Um, lessons with Mike are interesting, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever sat down with Mike and talked about music. Um, briefly, a little bit. Yeah, I got to work with him also in the BMI Jazz Composers Workshop, which okay. was which was great. Right. Awesome. I did that three on three separate years, you know, during sabbaticals or whatever. Um, but Mike is interesting, right? Because he, when you talk about music with him, he wants to talk about voicings, mm. vertical yes. structures, you know, and it's either voicings or mute combinations. Those are like the his go-to topics. Wow, right. It's great, right? But I found it frustrating. You can't get him to talk about big picture things like. Form or how to create that special moment within a piece. Or all that kind of stuff is just kind of happens, and I, I don't even know if he verbalizes it or thinks about it like other people. Like, mm. take, like Mike Holliver, for instance. 
you know, I find that really interesting. That's like big picture kind of musical substance. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you spell this chord and get the most juice out of huh. it? Yeah. Wow. So, um, when you were writing for Maynard's band and for your own projects, like what, uh, what kind of things were you experimenting with in terms of, you know, vertical harmonies or horizontal lines or counterpoint? Um, were there things that you kind of discovered because you had the chance to use the band as like a workshop? Uh, I don't know if I got to use the band, Mayor's band as a workshop okay. so much, sure. you know, rehearsal time was extremely limited. Huh. Um, mm. So, you know, it was it was sort of a luxury the days where you did get to pull out your your charts and try out something new with them. Uh, it was cool, you know, being on a bus with a bunch of guys that played different instruments yeah. and you know having different yeah. there. So, um, I certainly had a lot of great music conversations in hotel rooms, you know, where I'd bring guys in and show them certain things I was writing and say, "Hey, what do you think about this voicing?" Or you know. I remember one moment, uh, Jeff Rupert, he's a great saxophone player who teaches out in Florida, mm. uh, but he was on the band and, you know, we were talking about some voicings and experimenting and, uh, I remember one voicing cause it's, you know, that's a small, a little big band, right? It's, it's not a, not a full band, but we were experimenting with things like, uh, putting the trombone on the top of the voicing, ah. you know, where it really, where it's in its strongest register. Sure. Um, mm. So I remember things like that that were really cool with with that group specifically. Yeah. So um, beautiful. Then you started teaching at UConn, and can you tell me about what you kind of learned through that gig and just your experience as an educator? We should we should mention here, Aaron, that we should well congratulate him on like your major award. Oh, that's in right. Twenty thirteen yes. Teacher of the Year or. I, for, I forget the specific name of it, but it's pretty, pretty incredible, man. Like, yeah, please, uh, we'd love to hear more about how you've grown the program. And we, un- I know you're, you're, I think you're the only full-time faculty there, right? I have, a, um, I have I'm joined this year. I, I've got a colleague. And, oh, uh, brilliant. Yeah, so we, uh, we ended up hiring John Mastriani as okay. a saxophone woodwind doubling specialist. Nice. Lovely. And he's so great. And uh, I call him the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> so that has, you know, he's added a fresh spark to the program as well. And uh, we're working together to really further develop it. There's so many things I couldn't do when it was just one person. Mm. But now with two, you know, we're a real team. And uh, mm. so we're developing curriculum and uh, trying to get some new degree programs and refine our degree programs. And, uh yeah, it's it's great having someone that's so competent that I can turn over certain responsibilities. I even gave him the top band, you know. Huh. So now I run the feeder band, and uh, and I'm fine with that, you know. And it's it's cool. Um, wow. So what do you want to know about the uh, the program? I can't remember. Yeah, what I guess um, uh, you know Drew and I are both you know new to being educators in the college world. I guess. Um, yep. Other than being TAs and things like that, but you know. Uh, it's, I mean, for me, I know it's been a very much a learning process as you go and you kind of, you know, have a certain experiences and then you adjust next year. And I'm wondering if there's kind of, uh, 
any aspects of that process that you would share that might be insightful as an educator uh, or anything else? I don't know. I'm not really sure how I'd, I'd answer that question. You know, I do tweak and refine everything as I as I go. Um, my latest kick is putting things online. You know, I'm I'm trying to uh, adapt and become, you know, kind of go with the use technology to my advantage. Sure. I should say. Hmm. So I've now uploaded all of my uh, syllabi and and uh, class schedules online. And I've made those, you know, public so that uh, you know anyone that wants to to go on my website, they can they can go there yeah. and and uh, so you know those kind of things might be helpful even to you guys, sure. right? Just seeing how a class is structured, an improvisation class, or how I structure my improv classes, um, you know, and I include PDF handouts and all of that kind of stuff as well. Uh-huh. And I found so I've been doing that for the past few years, and. I do find that that helps me to be really organized and also to keep improving it year after year. You know, so if I look at it and I say, okay, man, maybe we've been talking about introductions, but I don't really have a handout on introductions to a, for a small group piece. So then I'll write a bunch of intros, let's say, and, and then upload those as demos for, uh, as PDFs and then they stay online. I don't lose them. Right. And they're, uh-huh. they're right there. Right. Uh huh. So that's my latest kick for trying to get better. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I just pulled up that's your wonderful. syllabi and I'm definitely going to use this as a, as a reference point. Cause I, I can certainly use some ideas. Um, and uh, speaking of your latest release, open borders that won the independent music award. Um, congratulations on that. And it sounds amazing what yeah what we were Drew both and listening I were, to it we're talking about as we kind of listened to the tracks together we were just like these voices so are do you guys so listen hip. together on what's that do you listen together online yeah or... yeah we were just listening wow, together cool. online yeah um yeah but in preparation for you know interview and have stuff to talk about and all that and get inspired <laughs> the, the voicings are so hip and yet like it's uh it's, but it's not overly like intellectualized. Like it feels good, and it's and it has like those rich voicings. I'm just I, I I'm fascinated by how you approach. Like let's say hit the road, Jack. You know that's obviously a classic tune, but you've kind of redone it. It still feels like the tune, but it's very different. It's very modernized. So uh, I I'm always fascinated by how how writers like yourself approach that. It's funny. I haven't, so I haven't thought about that arrangement for a little while. Uh, <laughs> I may have blogged about that at some point, you know, I've got, uh, and that's another thing I'm trying to do. I'm trying to like, I've had all these different blogs and they're all on different like websites and things. I'm trying to amalgamate them and bring them all together to my main website that's sure. over, over time. But I think at one time I did blog about that article or that arrangement. And I like to do that at the time because I tend to forget what I did later. <laughs> uh-huh. But um, so that piece I was asked to, it started out as a big band arrangement. Um, I was commissioned, I guess, by the Westchester Jazz Orchestra that was led by uh, Mike Holliver. Hmm. And they did a concert of music by uh, Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. Okay. And 
they had a whole bunch of arrangers contributing charts. And he asked me what, what song I'd like to do. And, um, you know, I was talking with my wife about it. And so together we, we thought hit the road, Jack might be kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember going through and listening to the original and trying to find elements and things that I might develop. Um, I remember that bass line, the descending line. Iconic. Yeah. So I thought, okay, what can I do with that? Right. So I started developing that section a little bit. Um, I remember transcribing the way that Ray sang it, you know, and I thought that was kind of cool. You know, there's like these little turns and what can I experiment with? Mm. Um, yeah. And then I, 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 that one incorporates a lot of stop time. Uh huh. Yes. And I think that actually came from later on in the chart. There's a section, it might've been a live version that I heard where the Ray Letts were singing those little, uh, singing backgrounds and seem like stop time. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to expand upon that. Okay, cool. I got to meet the Ray Lats one time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. With Maynard's band. This was fun. We were playing in Sweden and, uh, Ray Charles, we were actually opening for Ray Charles huh. and wow. I have such crazy memories of that gig because he had hired a new organ player and the guy didn't know the tune Georgia. Oh, so <gasps> he kept making uh, making mistakes. Ray, oh, in between no. lyrics, would be cursing at this guy, right? He'd be Georgia, you no good, blah blah blah, and Georgia, <laughs> you killed all the song and threw my band. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, that's terrible. That's a hilarious memory, though. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, so hopefully, you know, hopefully, I've given you some insight into what I how I approach that tune. But I, it's been a while. So do you do you approach yeah. arrangements yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and compositions with a larger ensembles? Like this is ten people, I think, right? That my my last album is a ten ten. Yeah. yeah. So like anything from that to big band, like uh, do you do you tend to gravitate towards vertical harmonies or horizontal, or like you mentioned, big picture? Is there a certain thing you lean towards as like a launching point? Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, you know, as a piano player, I can't help but think vertically in terms of chords, mm -hmm. but I try to compensate for that uh, because I know that I'm a piano player and I think that way. So I try to think more, more vertically. Um, or no, I, vertically is the wrong word. Horizontally yeah. would be okay, that, yeah. right? As opposed to vertically. Um, I don't know if I have a way that I, I lean, right? Although I will tell you, I'm a, a big list maker. Okay. So I, mm. by just making lists, all kinds of lists, um, if I'm arranging a tune, I might just look for what's, what grabs me or what might be developable, if that's a word. Um, then, uh, you know, after I've got a giant list of that kind of stuff, I start messing around with those elements then try to piece it together in some way um and i'm form is is a huge consideration for me at all times okay. and um it's amazing you know i still wrestle with this you know every time i approach a chart uh you know what do you do so that you're not dealing with blocks you know meaning intro block head block 
Soli block, you know, uh, solo with backgrounds, two more blocks. Like it just, you know, so I'm always tr wrestling with that and trying to get out of that in some way. Mm. So I find that thinking compositionally as opposed to arrangingly <laughs> <laughs> uh, helps, right? Especially when you're dealing with motives uh -huh. and thinking, okay, so what can I do with that motive to develop it and bring it from one section into the next and to blur the lines? I'm big into blurring the lines of, of form lately. Okay. Oh. Um, yeah, I guess that, that begs the question. I mean, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, in what, uh, what ways do you feel like being a pianist is an advantage and a disadvantage uh, being a, as being a composer? Um. um it's funny you know so i i remember i got the greatest compliment ever i think from tim reese at one point you know at, at during the recording session of my big band album where he sit, came up and he said yeah man it's, that's what i love most about your music is that it's not orchestrated piano music huh. uh, <laughs> it's an accomplished yeah right? yeah so that can be a problem. Yeah. But as you know, of course, as a piano player, we, we tend to think most about harmony and for years and years, I was obsessed with harmony. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. so of course that, you know, that's to my advantage. And I think a lot of voicings that I write, you know, stem from my piano experience. Um, I, as I said, I do try to think the other way as well. Um, you know, even, and I've always been doing, I've always been aware of that. You know, even as I practice, when I'm learning tunes, um, I'll practice them what I call double-fisted, right? Where I've got two hands playing the melody line. Or I'll practice soloing with just, with the two hands playing in unison. Mm. To think like a horn player, from note to note, as opposed to the right hand in relation to the left hand. Uh. Uh. Thinking, okay, well, that's the third of this chord that I'm playing in my right hand, you okay, know? yeah. Lately, so this is fun, right? My uh, my son picked up the trumpet. That's his that's his band instrument, right? Nice. And uh, so since he started that, I've been taking trumpet lessons with him. Oh. And and we practice together every day. Sweet. Wow. For you know four years about you know, and uh, he's really coming along. He's a better trumpet player than I am. But <laughs> so we did our first gig together. This was really cool, right? So I got to, uh, I hired him. Ah. I said, over the summer, if you can learn these 15 tunes, you know, I'll put you on this. Uh, it was a duo gig, but uh, I, with him at it, right? Yeah. I said, and I'll pay you 50 bucks. And for him, that's like yeah. a million bucks. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, that's so sweet. But um, that really has helped me in many ways, right? Because I'm not a, I'm not a, I've never been a brass player, but I think now I'm more sensitive to uh, the physical side of that instrument. You know, how you get physically tired. Yeah. Thinking mm. more about articulations, even more than I, I have in the past. Um, all that kind of stuff. So, and, uh, you know, what's what's possible and what's not. Sure. That's, right. That's a, yeah. That's a really cool story because uh, you're right. It's I don't play trumpet, you know, I, I'm a sax player primarily and it I, I, you know, picked up a trumpet just to mess around with it. Got a cheap little thing from a friend 
and I mean, it's like, it is super hard to play, <laughs> you know, just to get like a, just any kind of a sound. I mean, of course that's as, as a beginner, but even just feeling how tired you get after like five minutes of just noodling around, it's like, wow, okay. I need to give them more rest to my charts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So pacing is, I'd like to think that it, I'm getting better at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But I'm quite obsessed with the trumpet right now. You know how, as musicians, we tend to all have that personality where we get drawn into suckered <laughs> into one thing, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, right now, trumpet is my thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> nice. That is yeah. such a true thing. That's a, yeah, for sure. I'm sure. It, I don't. I've done the same thing. Noodled. Not as not four years, but it gave me so much appreciation for Freddie Hubbard. Oh like, man! Like oh oh my gosh! Like how does he do what he does? It's incredible. Totally. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Arrangers Podcast. If you enjoyed what you just heard, you can support us directly with a small donation on Patreon or by sharing this episode with a friend. You can hear lots of other interviews, score studies, and fun discussions at www.thearrangerspodcast.com or wherever you find podcasts. Bye for now and keep writing.